The Bob Murphy Show, episode 160. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be talking with Jeff Dice, who's the president of the Mises Institute. Now what we're going to be talking about in this episode primarily is Henry Hazlitt, as we'll explain shortly in the actual interview. The Institute has a very special and generous offer for those of you interested in obtaining copies of his classic book, Economics in One Lesson. If you want to hear more just though about Jeff himself and his background and so on, you may recall he was the number four interview that I did in the Bob Murphy Show. So that was bobmurphyshow.com slash four. If you want to go see my interview with Jeff Dice, where we talk about him. But in this one, like I say, we're going to be talking mostly about Henry Hazlitt. In case you don't know his background, let me just give you a quick summary. Jeff Dice is president of the Mises Institute, where he serves as a writer, public speaker, and advocate for property, markets, and civil society. He previously worked as a longtime advisor and chief of staff to Congressman Ron Paul, for whom he wrote hundreds of articles and speeches. In his years with Dr. Paul, he worked with countless grassroots activists and organizations dedicated to reducing the size and scope of government. Jeff also spent many years as a tax attorney advising private equity clients on mergers and acquisitions. Let me also just mention, before we turn over to the main interview here, that near the end, Jeff and I do talk about the current election uh, because if if I did the timing right and processing this, this episode you're listening to right now should be dropping either on or right around Election Day 2020. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jeff Deist. Well, Jeff, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. Hey, thanks, Bob. Good to see you. So tell us about uh, the the Institute, my understanding is, has a special promotion on uh, or something they're doing regarding Henry Hazlitt. So can you tell us about that? Right. So... We get a lot of requests for books for lay people or newcomers. People are saying, I've just started reading about Austrian economics, and they find Mises.org maybe a little daunting or a little overwhelming. So you and I know this. I'm sure all of your listeners know this. For Really, for decades, people have recommended Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson as maybe the, the single best economics book ever written for a lay audience, if you're mm-hmm. only going to read one, let's say. Right, And a lot of people are not going to tackle human action or man, economy, and state, for instance. There's nothing wrong with that. A lot of people are not going to make reading economics a fundamental part of their life. It's not a hobby. It's not a passion. It's not something that they necessarily want to pursue. So, you know, there's been some various uh, versions and updates to Economics in One Lesson over the years since he was produced in 46 by Hazlitt. But what blows me away about this book is, is the standalone chapters. So yeah. first he introduces the, the very simple lesson in chapter one, which is all of about three and a half pages. And if you just read that, you know more conceptually maybe than, than 90% of the people walking around out there. But then there are standalone chapters, like there's one on uh, rent control. There's one on minimum wage. Uh, there's one on which he, I love this title, calls the fetish of full employment, which is all about mm-hmm. public works and that sort of thing, which is, you know, back in vogue. 
So we love to give this book away just because we think if there's only one thing we can cram into people's brains between all the social media and all the white noise, let's make it small. Let's make it digestible. Let's make it so they can even just read parts of it without reading it left to right chronologically and, and still get some value. So we decided to redo it in a little hardcover. Uh, just because of our volume, we were able to get a very nice little version, very cheap. It's got, has its introduction. It has a new introduction by myself, a preface, which just goes into some of Hazlitt's background, some, a little bit more of his personal stuff, his incredible work ethic and output, which we can talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's just a fun little book. And, uh, you know, it's it sometimes I feel like we're in, uh, I think we all feel this way, that we're in sort of late stage America. And you think, well, it's too right. late for these educational efforts. You just have to be out there manning the ramparts or something. And, mm-hmm. and, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. But if you are going to have any kind of changing of people's hearts and minds, I think there has to be ideas behind it. I think there has to be at least a, a somewhat intellectual base to it. We can't just be creatures totally of emotion or vitriol or worse yet, tribes. So I still think there's value to this sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have at our site, mises.org slash one lesson. So just spelled mm-hmm. out Mises.org slash one lesson. We have a form. You can and go to their site. O-N-E? O-N-E. The one lesson. One. Okay, yep. Mm-hmm. And you can you can get as many copies of this book sent to you as you like. We'd, we'd love for you to give it to your student groups, to your friends and family. We're distributing them through our network of professors all across the country. And, you know, uh, it, it's nice if you can help us pay for postage. Books cost a lot to ship, but you're not required to do so. And uh, you, you'll see that information at the form. So this is the Christmas gift, a stocking stuffer you need uh, for the people in your life who are not necessarily hostile to our way of thinking about economics, but maybe just unaware. And uh, mm-hmm. man, you you know as well as I do, I, I got through high school without a single econ class. And I only had mm-hmm. two in undergrad. So I, I don't really know what the state of economics education in high school is these days, but I bet it's not good. And, uh, th- you know, this book's perfect. Well, yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I did take an economics class in high school. So I knew in high school that I wanted to eventually be a, a professor. I even knew I wanted to be an Austrian by the time I was a senior. But yeah, we so I took the economics class and it was taught by the football coach. And, you know... <laughs> I say that, and it, you know, hey, you, somebody could be athletic and also be intellectual. Yeah. But I'm just saying, in practice, what are the chances the football coach was also a scholar? And it, you know, he was a nice guy and everything, but yeah, it wasn't a very rigorous class. I'm, and uh, like for example, we, one of the things we watched. Do you remember the Danny DeVito movie, Other People's Money? Of course. So we like we watched that, and and then like I was trying to argue with the guy and whatever, and like say what the you know I was trying to defend hostile takeovers because I didn't think the movie did a good job of explaining. You know, the, the issues involved, they're like, oh, the kind of company that's right for this guy to take over is one where, you know, the management has been ripping off the shareholders and wasting their resources. We want this to end. But anyway, uh, yeah, so it, it was not very, it was it, it was more like, not home economics, but it, it was not giving you the kind of stuff that yeah. you know, Hazlitt's book gives. And I also, to get ready for this interview, I, I realized I've been telling people Rothbard was the one who like most shaped my views on economics but probably word for word, it was Hazlitt because I'm almost positive that I read economics in one lesson first and then that led me to, you know, Rothbard and Mises and everybody. And so, yeah, probably this book more than anything else. And I, I don't know if you can speak to this or we can try to figure out why this is, but you're right, Jeff, something about this book, it's the perfect combination of 
it doesn't feel too old. Like when you read Bastiat, mm -hmm. I mean, it's amazing, but you do kind of feel like you're looking back in time and this is like a fossil or something. It doesn't, you're like, oh, I couldn't give this to some, you know, kid nowadays. Like you would need something more relevant. And yet Hazlitt seems like it's got the right combination of it's modern enough that it resonates with an American reader today, but yet it has a timelessness to it that sort of gives it more gravitas or something. Well, I think that's true. The fact that the book still works 80 years later is is testament, mm -hmm. I think, to its uh, clarity and its uh, brevity. And, you know, if you read The Theory of Money and Credit by Mises, there's a lot of historical reference in that book. Right. Uh, to to the you know previous uh, gold workings and that sort of thing so that that book can read a little dated uh, but this is really you know this book is is about conceptually thinking about economics and you know the 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 very simple lesson that we have to look at any proposed policy not only in terms of its immediate impact on a certain group but on its look at its long-term impact on everybody across society across the civilization you know how many times today you go on twitter today and you'll see that that mm -hmm. lesson still has not taken hold right, across the, right. the population. So you get to a point where you say, we, we still have work to do. We have to win some hearts and minds. We have to try to save people from misinformation, from bad education, from being ill-educated. And, you know, at some point, that requires them to take at least a few intellectual steps. You have to look a step or two further. And our political system encourages politicians to sell us the opposite, to sell us immediate gratification, you know, in exchange for long-term pain. And, and in many cases, that pain inures to our children or grandchildren, even worse. So mm -hmm. uh, this, this book's the antidote. It's the corrective to that. And uh, boy, I wish we had a Hazlitt today. I, I've, you know, I yeah. I've mulled this over. I've said, who, who is sort of our modern day, uh, you know, an economics, finance, and business writer who's not, a, not an academic who writes for a popular audience, but writes as well as, as Henry Hazlitt did. And I think that that's, that's well, tough, tough question. Yeah. And that, yeah, because you're putting your finger on like what, what was so special about this and yeah, it's a combination of things. So you're right. The contrast with Mises is funny because yeah, in money and credit theory of money, Mises is like, you know, oh, and as the reader is well aware, the Bavarian currency reform was an absolute disaster. And it's like, oh, yes, yes, I know Mises. <laughs> you don't even know what the heck he's talking about, some of these things. Like, presumably people in 1912, more of them would have known what he meant, but still, he he kind of assumes that he's writing for Renaissance men, whereas Hazlitt, it's, it, you know, he's not he's not treating you like a little kid, but yet he, he understands, like, the level of the language to use and, like, how much to assume the reader knows his background. Um, it, but yet, at the same time, these issues really are timeless, stuff like, the blessings of destruction, which, you know, is a fallacy, of course. And then there's the broken window fallacy. I mean, because that stuff, I, I had, me, me, we were arguing about that on Mises.org, like within the last five years, I think, that sure. there was a modern day sort of resurgence. Because what had happened, I don't know if you remember this, Jeff, but like the Keynesians were mad at how many like free market types were just saying, oh, go read Bastiat, you idiots. And they were like, no, 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 we understand that we're not committing the fallacy. And yet they were still, you know, arguing about, like they're saying, oh, it can, it can still increase GDP. Maybe that's still a bad thing, though, if, you know, just if there's destruction. So it was um, an interesting renaissance of, of that and, you know, having these exact same arguments. But yet at the same time, so Hazlitt knows this stuff and he's a great writer. So you're right. It is a, a combination of, of, of skills. Well, he, he paid a price, though. He paid a price. And that price is, by his own judgment, having written about 10 million words. He told Bettina Bien Graves, who many of you will know as a longtime benefactor to uh, 
to uh, Fee and the Mises Institute, who edited a lot of uh, uh, Mises and Hazlitt herself, or different versions of them, uh, he confided in her that he, he had written every day of his life from about age 20 on. Mm-hmm. And he lived well into his 90s. Uh, he lived long enough actually to be a benefactor to the Mises Institute and leave us in his will. And, and uh, that funding was in part what allowed us to build our first building in uh, the middle 90s right here in Auburn. But uh, he was also, I, I want to add, if you read my introduction, my preface to this book, a huge benefactor personally to Mises. And it, it really speaks to his character and what a gentleman he was uh, throughout his life, helping others quietly when he himself had come from very modest circumstances. You know, Mises didn't have a lot of money mm-hmm. upon arriving uh, with Margaret in New York City. And Hazlitt immediately took it upon himself to introduce him to as many people as he could in both university and business circles. Uh, he got him uh, some a little bit of cash, 10 bucks an article writing for the New York Times. Uh, obviously more for the uh, notoriety of being in the New York Times than the money. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. I guess $10 was something back then. And, uh, you know, this, this it's really a beautiful story. This is, this is a guy who's incredibly impressive, uh, you know, single mom, didn't have much going on, uh, was briefly in World War I, and absolutely self-created and self-taught, both in terms of mm-hmm. his economics and his writing prowess. And I would argue that he certainly left this world with as much knowledge as any PhD had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I flipped through in preparation for this talk with you, the end of at least one of the editions of the book, and it had it, Hazlitt saying at the end of Economics in One Lesson, here's, you know, books for further reading kind of thing. And yeah, and the st- he's read more of the classics than I have. You know, he, he was listing some things there. They're like, oh yeah, in a perfect world, if I was on a desert island, I would read that someday. And he's yeah. read all that stuff. But also uh, he has this tantalizing thing saying, and the, you know, Ludwig von Mises is working on something. When that comes out, you know, it's going to blow everything else out of the water kind of thing. So, you know, he must've known Mises work. Cause I think this was written, the thing I'm talking about was like in 46, so he knew, must have known Mises was working on what would be called human action, but yet it hadn't come out yet. And so he was he was telling his readers to look out for that. So showing, like you say, that he and he had a special relationship with Mises before Mises was you know famous within these circles. Well, it, it's interesting. You know, this guy wrote about everything. He wrote a novel. He wrote about epistemology. He wrote about economics. He wrote about logic. He even wrote about uh, willpower. So this is this is interesting. This book is called The Way to Willpower, which he wrote well mm-hmm. before he ever met Mises. He wrote this in the 20s. And so he's a young guy, and his own willpower had enabled him to get a job at Wall Street Journal just through his own typing skills. He found out that you might make more typing at a, at a publication than you did digging ditches or some kind of manual labor when he got out of the Air Corps in World War I. So this book is this book is so funny because first of all, it, he talks about you know if you just stay home one night a week while all your buddies are out at the bars, and you mm-hmm. save four hours one night a week, you know times four times a month times fifty two weeks a year, and plus you save five dollars in in you know buying your buddies beers or whatever. You'll by the end of the year you'll have built up this much knowledge and this much extra money. So it's 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 kind of self help in a very funny way. But but the reason I, I wanted to mention it briefly was that he introduces some concepts that are straight out of Mises. Mm-hmm. But, but again, he's writing this in 1922. Mm-hmm. So when Mises hasn't written his, his big books yet, for example, he talks about willpower. You know, what's willpower? 
He says, uh, may be defined as the ability to keep a remote desire so vividly in mind that immediate desires which interfere with it are not gratified. So, uh, you know, this is basically time preference. Mm-hmm. And he brings up the difference between desire and demand. He talks about, you know, you may want that $100 overcoat. Imagine a $100 overcoat in 1921 or 22. <laughs> that was pretty serious. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But what what really struck me, I thought this was so great. He's talking about, he was really talking about means and ends in this book about willpower. He says, you know, you can have strong willpower and be an effective person and still be a bad guy. You know, he says, you can, you, you know, if, if you want to be a pickpocket, uh, you can still show show good willpower. You know, you're very, you work hard and you study your craft and you uh, you make a big effort every day to, to improve your pickpocketing skills. So, so willpower is not enough. He says, you know, society asks something more of us. It, it asks that your ideals also be socially beneficial. So, you know, that struck me as, uh, again, that struck me as kind of Misesian in the sense that Mises considered the term social cooperation or the title, I should say, social cooperation for human action. And so, you know, I just get this feeling that back then people felt a lot more comfortable writing all different kinds of things without, you know, today you'd be savaged for, you know, stay in your lane. Um, Mm -hmm, If you mm -hmm. were, first of all, if you were in your early 20s and you wrote a willpower book, I don't know how that would go, but you know, later on, he wrote a novel. Later on, he wrote The Foundations of Morality in 64. Right. Very important book because I think it, for the, again, for the lay person, it helps you understand Mises' utilitarianism in, in a more maybe digestible way than human action does. It, it explains, you know, this, this concept of rule utilitarianism. This isn't John Stuart Mill telling us some sort of weird greatest good for the greatest number equation. He's saying, no, we need to have rules for society, and and we judge uh, policies or actions based on whether they conform to these rules, which again we've determined are socially beneficial. So mm-hmm. I've talked to David Gordon a bit about this, and you know the the idea being that let's say we have a we say that if you drive anybody who drives twenty five miles per hour over the speed limit or more ought to get a really significant fine because when you start getting up into the 70, 80, 90 miles per hour, that's that's really dangerous. That causes a lot of accidents and people die as a result. And so we ought to have this, this uh, significant penalty for people who drive that much over the speed limit. And so then you look at an individual driver and you say, well, we're going to judge his or her actions by whether they conform to this rule. Now, it may well be that by conforming to this rule, uh, across the country, there are a certain number of instances where somebody's driving a pregnant woman to the hospital. Right, and if right. he conforms to that rule, he's not going to get there in time, and she's maybe going to have a difficult time in delivering a baby in a car or something, but we still don't change the rule. So, the, so Foundations of Morality is, I think, a good book for anybody who's interested in understanding Mises' epistemology, anyone who's interested in in sort of better grasping this idea of a of a normative versus utilitarian approach in economics or or anywhere else in social science. Right, and that's it is interesting cuz yeah, I read that. I think I was in grad school when I when I read that. And yeah, it was again, it, it's Hazlitt. Anything he touches, it's crystal clear. So at the time, I think I was moving away from just, you know, pure consequentialism and whatnot, but so I don't think I was end up being convinced, but again, it was like the, yeah, that's the like the best thing to read on that cuz he, he does a whole book on it whereas Mises you know, sort of has passing reference to it here and there, and you can get a sense of what his, how Mises ultimately would justify stuff. Because he does, 
a lot of people don't realize like Mises almost ridicules natural rights and mm -hmm. natural law and human action, you know, saying, well, in nature, there's, you know, predators eat the prey. What's, you know, there's no morality there. What are you talking about? And so, yeah, Hazlitt really spells that out. Uh, there. So, so yeah, you're right. I mean, the guy, he wrote, he, he had, yeah, he has the novel. He's got the, that, that book. So the, the willpower one, like, was that, was he giving the read? Cause I, I didn't even know about that one. Was he giving the reader and like, like a plan, like this. This is the way you build up your willpower. Yeah, he the the book is mostly about trade offs. Okay, um, it, it, it's uh, you could say it's a book about opportunity costs, and you know, self help is a genre which I don't particularly care for, and I, I especially think you know libertarians ought to be cautious about self help as a you know as trying to morph a, a political philosophy or a, a, a view of economics into some sort of broader lifestyle thing that always gives me a little bit of pause and the only the only people i want self help advice from are really successful people who are much smarter and better than me right <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to hear some think tanker like mouthing off about how to live you know um but this isn't self-help in the sense that we understand it. This isn't the, you know, uh, I'm okay, you're okay, or this isn't even sort of the Babbitt, um, how to win friends and influence people of Dale Carnegie. This is more a book about discipline and habit. Mm -hmm. This is so, so this book would apply, I think, to any endeavor in life. Uh, it, it's about concentration. I think I get the sense, knowing what I know about Hazlitt's personal life, is that he's kind of talking to himself in this book, uh, that mm -hmm. he's really he, he's really laying out um, the path to success. So, uh, you know, I, I'm willing to give Hazlitt a pass. He he can write on uh, he can write about outer space, and I would read it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it would be interesting. So, and he does have the novel. Is it, what is it called? Time will run back, or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And that one, I haven't read it. Have you read it? I have not. I have not it, read it. I believe it's like. I flipped through it once and like, like I think Stalin is a character in the book. Do, do you know enough? Do you know enough about it? To, well, if that's right. Like we, I, we have it for sale downstairs. So that might be one of my weekend projects at some point. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I believe it's like a, you know, dystopian thing or like showing like, you know, he's taking right. all his knowledge of economics and whatever, but I'm pretty sure that, yeah, it's like an alternate universe where, you know, there's a collectivist system. Um, so just for the benefit, so the, the listeners who don't know, so he was, by trade, he was a, a journalist then? Well, he's- Is how we would label him? He started out as a typist. Okay. You know, he's he's born just about a decade after Mises, but in many ways, they were contemporaries in the sense that they were social friends and also colleagues, very much so. And and again, wow, did he promote Mises at a time when Mises needed it. And, and that sort of thing, I think, should go remarked. Mm -hmm. uh, but so he started out at the Wall Street Journal- after taking some typing and secretarial courses because he saw the ads, the want ads, he saw the pay scale for secretaries was higher than the, the pay and other jobs he was likely to get. Right, right. So he starts out just being good at typing. And, uh, you know, at the Wall Street Journal, immediately takes an interest in the actual copy. He's tasked with typing up and typesetting. And so it, it is interesting when you think that the there's a juxtaposition between the mechanical and technical apparatus that we all deal with in our own personal lives, regardless right. of what mm -hmm. good or service you hope to produce. We all have technical platforms and, and mechanisms we need to at least be okay with, if not master. And then there's the content. So he starts off purely on the technical side of that uh, of the task, the Wall Street Journal, and, and immediately gave himself 
uh, quite a lesson in in education and finance and economics. And there's a little bit of an analogy here to Amity Schley's. Uh, some of your mm-hmm. listeners will know her as the historian. Uh, she's got a great book on Coolidge. She actually runs the Coolidge Foundation up in uh, Plymouth Notch, Vermont. And she's but she was a longtime editor at Wall Street Journal. And her education and background is in English and German. She has some German ancestry. So those were the things she studied uh, officially in school. But when she got to the Wall Street Journal, you know, she was just was forced in order to perform her job to absorb a huge amount of material from very brilliant people. And and in my conversation with her, uh, she said basically this was the greatest MBA you ever could have wanted because you had to uh, sort of understand the underlying theory, but also there's a ton of empirical data uh, in, in, you know, in Wall Street Journal back then and even today. And so, um, you know, she's, she's veered off more into historian and biographer than uh, finance or economics writer. So I, I guess in these days, I wouldn't consider her to be a Hazlitt figure, although I'm sure she admires him. But um, there's also, you know, John Tamney, if if, mm-hmm. you, if you recall his name, he writes for Real Clear Markets and and uh, who's got that sort of punchy, pugnacious style and also knows his econ. Um, he, he's become a little bit of an anti-Austrian in recent years, but he's he's a good guy and and knows his stuff. You know, Steve Forbes had in his younger days when he wrote more right. about as mm-hmm. a as a economics journalist, had a little bit of that sort of I don't want to say folksy, but you know, really relatable touch to his writing. No, no highfalutin stuff. Right, right. But boy, I think social media has just blown this out of the water now. Everything is so sort of, you know, for immediate consumption, everything's so ephemeral. Uh, it doesn't really encourage a, a young Hazlitt out there from from uh, rising to the ranks. I, I fear that uh, we're in a very dark period of uh, financial and, and econ journalism. Yeah, you're right, because I can remember the different stages. Like there was a point early on when everyone was more and more online and everything where it was like, oh, if I need to, if I need a book, if I can't get the PDF, then forget it. I'm not going to go get the physical book that takes too long. Now it's the point where, oh, I won't even post a, a YouTube link on you know Twitter because then someone has to go, no, I need to be like a GIF. Otherwise, it's yeah. too, you know, you got to wait too yeah. long. It's too, you know what I mean? So it's, or GIF, depending on how the people pronounce it. So it, it is amazing, yeah, the attention span and how much it's like, oh, no, you expect me to go read something? Are you kidding me? Yeah, that is unfortunate. And yet, as you say, it, it is important, which is why people who haven't read at least economics in one lesson really need to to give that a, a shot. They do. They do. And sooner rather than later, because, wow, I mean, uh, Joe Biden is like a, a walking contradiction to this book. I mean, you know, half the stuff he says is just so easily demystified, but people have to try. They have to want to demystify it. Well, and it's, I was looking over it again and Hasley kind of anticipates that, not Joe Biden, but in the beginning where he says words, the effect of economics is the most, is filled with the most fallacies of any science. And he, and he says why that, you know, unlike physics or chemistry or whatever, that you know, there's there's special pleading for special interests when it comes to economics. In other words, like certain groups can benefit from publicly pronouncing fallacies, whereas like with physics or something, that's not, not going to be the case. Not that this one group over here is going to get rich if people don't understand how rockets work or something. And so, you know, that's because because it, it, it's amazing. Like everything like you're saying, everything right now in this book that was written in the 40s originally 
is relevant to watching the debates and understanding why what what both candidates, you know, when they're promising things is, you know, isn't going to deliver what they say. So, well, you know, if I can, since we're bringing up the presidency, can I plug another one of his books? Oh, certainly. So he wrote a book that nobody's ever heard of called A New Constitution Now. Mm -hmm. I think it's A New Constitution, comma, now. And he wrote this in the 40s, in the early 40s. And he's worried about, among other things, FDR's third term. Mm -hmm. So the book is, among other things, a, a warning about executive power. What he saw is too much power consolidating in one branch. And so he was a, he came back and basically uh, revised the book in the early 70s. So the the first time he wrote it it's about his his you know concern over FDR. The second time he wrote he revised it it's having just seen the Nixon and Spiro Agnew debacle and sort of the Watergate scandal. So he basically argues for a more parliamentary system in the U.S., which I think is great. I, I would love to have mm -hmm. multiple parties. I would like to have coalitions of, of various, you know, first and second and third parties um, coming together for like an anti-war resolution, you know, or, you know, that would give a, a Ron Paul or a Tulsi Gabbard potentially some, some maneuvering room mm -hmm. in Congress uh, that they don't have right now because we have this, this horrible binary We'd have libertarians and greens and peace and freedom and socialist candidates. And, you know, there's 330 million people. We should. But he basically says that the presidency is way too powerful. He comes out against the Electoral College in this book, which is interesting, um, and reminds us it's actually the 12th Amendment. I, I want to say it's 1803 or maybe 1804, which, which gives us the current version of the Electoral College. It's not in the in original constitutional language. He says, this is no good. We ought to have sort of a, a system of voting, which sounds a little bit like rank voting, but it isn't. Because he says, if you have ranked voting, you know, and you put down your number one choice, but your number two is a lot of other people's number one, then you've effectively hurt your own candidate and helped someone mm -hmm. else's. So he says, no, no, no. He, he comes up with this system where, you know, you should have your number one choice. And then all everyone else on the ballot, hopefully there's lots of people for one office. You either have, you can name them acceptable or leave them blank. So all the number one choices count for one and all the acceptables count for a half. So mm -hmm. you add it all up <laughs> and the, the winner is the winner. Um, so he's got some really crazy ideas. And a, a lot of the book, which I actually reviewed on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, a lot of the ideas I didn't really care for. I thought that they would probably aggrandize the state, not shrink it. But it's just mm -hmm. interesting that he was thinking in these terms way back then. He wanted to get rid of the office of the vice presidency altogether. Um, he, he wanted to have the president's cabinet uh, sort of straddle the executive and legislative branches. So it, like in the UK, it would have to be approved by Congress. So he mm -hmm. says, now we just have this cabinet where they all work for the president and they're effectively just working for him. And so that's, you know, that's the, all of their cabinet level power accrues to the president. And he also singles out the Supreme Court for, he's got seven or eight specific concrete recommendations in the book. And he says that, you know, the Supreme Court is, is way too powerful. It shouldn't be doing all these things. And it's basically become uh, a, another a legislature unto itself. So the kind of concerns we have today were absolutely applicable in, back in the 40s. And so the solution to this is to have governors get together and help decide Supreme Court justices. So just, hmm. it's kind of a crazy book, but it's, it's uh, very concrete 
It's very specific. He lays out a lot of scenarios. He gives numbers. He gives examples. And he also has some chapters devoted to objections to his suggestions. So, you know, the very, very kind of hands-on guy, not afraid to roll up his sleeves and be political, right. at least in this structural sense. So that's interesting. I'm, I'm just trying to remember enough of the history because I know the Supreme Court originally struck down some of the New Deal stuff and then with the threat of court packing kind of, actually, this stuff is fine now. Go ahead. Yeah. Like, is that partly what he was getting at? Yeah. That they, were, well, they weren't doing what they were supposed to? There's a whole grouping of decisions called the Lochner era decisions, which are really about mm -hmm. the concept of substantive economic due process. And w once we lost that, once, once economic concerns... Were, were sort of relegated to a second tier of constitutional protections, at least in the in, in Supreme Court jurisprudence. I'm not saying they are in right. the original Constitution. Right. But once that happens and so-called personal or individual freedoms are elevated to requiring a more strict level of scrutiny by the Supreme Court, I would argue COVID lockdowns uh, require that higher, more strict level of scrutiny by the Supreme Court to be affirmed. I, and I hope some of this stuff makes its way. Uh, to mm -hmm. that body, but uh, we'll see. But, you know, it, I, I do think that there was a certain lament uh, in his mind that the Supreme Court had, you know, done some really goofy things with respect to the general welfare clause and particularly with respect to the commerce clause, right, which right. has been interpreted wildly beyond um, any meaning or understanding at the time. So, uh, you know, I, I guess the interest in this book is mostly a historical footnote now, but it shows Hazlitt uh, for a, a pragmatic guy, not a, a pie-in-the-sky theorist. Well, and also not like rigid conservative and like, oh, this is the way things have been done and you newfangled radicals trying to upset no. the apple cart. No, I mean, no. he's wanting to redesign the Constitution. That's pretty radical in a sense. It, it's very radical, and I'm sure it got him some grief. But what's interesting, that he wrote that in the 40s. Mm -hmm. Now, several decades later in 68, in The Freeman, which was Fee's longtime publication, he writes an essay called The Task Confronting Libertarians, which if you go back and read it, it, it it's still great today. It's got a lot of the same sort of thinking between the, the I guess what we might call the Hayekian top-down capture the intellectuals model versus the Rothbardian bottom-up, you know, have a populist approach model. Uh, so it captures some of those tensions. But what struck me about it was the language. He, he, he doesn't sound nearly as as libertarian in the 40s as he does by 68. Mm -hmm. there, there's a real shift. I mean, what this what he's writing in 68, it's got a little bit of um, sort of uh, pessimism to it mm -hmm. because he's mm -hmm. seen what's happened since World War II. Uh, but it's also just the language is starker. The language is more, uh, really more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, 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 it's very, very libertarian. He, mm -hmm. he, he's becomes, he sounds more radical by the sixties. So, you know, I would love to, to know more people who knew him. Lou Rockwell knew him. Marty Rockwell knew him a little bit, you know, Joe Salerno, Pat Barnett met him. And, and there's a lot of people in, in, uh, you sort of a libertarian and free market and classical liberal think tankdom and all that who who did meet him and get to know him a little bit. Those people are generally getting older now. Right. Uh, he, again, he died in the nineties. So, um, but, but for those people who, who did get to meet this guy, patrician, always really well-dressed, uh, very well-spoken, uh, made, made himself a lot of money, not through his journalism, but through his investing.
Oh, okay. His investing acumen and, and died with, with uh, I think, a fair amount of money. So uh, fascinating character and, and mm-hmm. uh, kind of straddled Mises' his old world and then uh, maybe right. Rothbard's newer one. Mm-hmm. Now, I think you were possibly alluding to this before when you were talking about he said something to uh, Bettina Greaves. I know there was one thing near the end where he he was very pessimistic when you were talking about how much he wrote. Like, didn't he say something like, I wrote all this stuff and I, you know, I don't know if it made a difference. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've seen people quote it. I never read the original. I've heard that. And you know, anybody who's written 10 million words has probably spoken quite a few as well. Mm -hmm. And, and I hate this idea of pinning a particular quote or particular phrase on, on any thinker when they've done so much, when they produce so much. I mean, you know, you get older in this world and uh, you start to have some aches and pains and uh, you don't have as much, you got more more time in the rear view mirror than the, the you know, asphalt ahead of you. you I think you should be allowed a, a wistful thought or two. And, and uh, it's, hard, it's hard to say what he thought. Okay, okay. So since we brought it up, I know we're coming up here on the, on the closing this window down, but I think this episode that we're doing right now is going to drop possibly on election day itself. So besides the relevance of Hazlitt to this cycle, is any thoughts you have that you want to give to the, to well, the listeners? Yes. I, I assume that we will not know on the late evening of Tuesday who won, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. I assume that that might take a few days or a week. Maybe Biden will win the um, popular and electoral vote reasonably handily, you know, 52-48 or 53-47, and we will know. I, I guess that's possible. I doubt that. I really dislike this absentee and mail-in voting. I think it's absolute nonsense. What used to be election day, bad enough. Now we got election week, election month, and we're going to have election mm. aftermath because certain states are allowing uh, ballots which are simply postmarked by Tuesday right. to still be counted. So when does this end? I mean, the, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, Bob, um, er, <laughs> Early voting was generally for soldiers, or I should say absentee voting. Mm-hmm. Not early, absentee was generally for soldiers and people who knew for some reason they were going to be on vacation or overseas or something. Right. Okay. It was very specific, very limited. So now we have this period of month. What if, what if you already voted and a big scandal happens right. or a war breaks out or something that could that could really impact your perspective of who you want in this unfortunately wildly too pop powerful office. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think that's all nonsense. I think in this day and age, we ought to have electronic voting on voting day only. It ought to be easy to count and it ought to be done by Tuesday night. I, you know, anything else I think is just absurd. And I don't trust uh, the mail-in process at all because, you know, how do you account for the chain of custody of your physical ballot in the mail? Right. I mean, ha- a lot of the postal postal people now aren't even uh, post office employees. They're just contractors in their own car. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to know? I mean, you know, there's enough questioning with the electronic machine in the in the polling station. I mean, who knows? You, you just press the button and you right. hope or assume it got counted. But now this adds a whole nother level. So th- this is look, this is a recipe for disaster. We're going to have we're going to probably going to have lawsuits. We're going to have, um, you know, who knows? So it's not just not helpful this 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 harm ritual every 4 years man i i can't stand it now do you think that it's this kind of like just dumb luck and it's oh yeah that's bureaucracy for you or do you think it's intentional 
to foster this, you know, whether using the COVID-19 excuse for all people who want to go. In other words, now that it, do, it does seem like, yeah, there's a lot more margin of if people behind the scenes want to yeah. create or, or destroy well, a few votes one way or the other, now they have a lot, it's a lot easier to do that. I, I don't think it's intentional in the sense of a nationwide effort to suppress particular ballots. I do think in individual circumstances, a particular postal carrier, for example, could dump a bunch of ballots in a sewer or a trash can. I think that can and will happen. Um, and I also think that this is about perception. We, do, we don't know how many votes anybody gets. I mean, that's, we mm. kind of know maybe, but we don't really know. Right. So the fact that there's immediately going to be teams uh, lined up to engage in lawsuits to question the vote. I mean, it shows that this is all about perception. So the Biden people are just hoping that by Tuesday night, they've created a perception that's strong enough in the public mind that Biden won. And, and that's that. I mean, the facts are almost secondary. And as with everything in politics is about perception. Yeah. Yeah. And ironically too, that, you know, they, they have to walk a fine line between, you know, Trump is crazy for criticizing the, 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 the mail and stuff. This is completely sacrosanct. Don't worry, our things are. And by the way, Russia and Iran are doing everything in their power to, you know, disrupt our election. Right. Like they're having to say both of those narratives simultaneously. It's kind of funny that you know, the, the Trump's a crazy guy for suggesting there might be some some uh, things out of out of place in the in the voting. Well, here's what's really crazy: is fewer than 170,000 votes spread across six swing states gave the electoral victory to Trump in 2016. Now, you can believe or not believe, who knows, that Hillary Clinton got three, three million-ish more raw popular votes. That may be true. Mm -hmm. But they also would have campaigned differently. Maybe Trump would have spent more time in California and New York State. Who knows? Right, well, let's right, just accept right. that. So three million popular votes to Trump's 170,000-ish raw votes leading to an electoral college victory. I mean, it, it, this is a country of 330 million people. I mean, we're going to have a national psychosis an, an emotional breakdown almost of half the country based on 170,000 people. And if if those 170,000 had gone the different way towards Hillary, you know what we would have been told? We would have said, oh, see, our sacred democracy works. And Americans weren't fooled by this TV reality show con man. Mm -hmm. and, and they really are wise. And this sort of arc of progressivism Manifested by Hillary Clinton, the inevitable first female president of the United States. You know, obviously this was just going to happen. You, you know, 170,000 right, right. votes would have completely changed this absurd narrative and the perception of the whole event. And, and I can't accept that. That's not healthy for any society. Yeah, exactly. And it, it is, as you were saying, I don't know if you want to mention it here as a final thought that ultimately, you know, is is breaking up the only thing that that's going to make sense at this point besides both sides, just, you know, well, let's put aside our differences and we really can live side by side in the same polity. Well, it does make sense, but my, my perception, my own filter is that the mm. left is not interested in that because they view the demographic shifts as portending victory for them and that Republicans are going to sooner or later become a permanent minority party because Texas and Florida become blue. Okay, so even, yeah, even in Texas. So just hang on to it. Yeah, yeah. nobody will talk about the Electoral College if Texas and Florida are blue because it won't matter. I think Republicans would be better as a minority party and as a state and local party. They might actually find some of their uh, supposed principles. Right, yeah, because there's never any, you know, they're the best fiscal hawks when there's a Democrat in the White House, that's for sure. 
<laughs> okay, well, my guest, folks, has been Jeff Deist. Uh, again, go to Mises.org slash one lesson. That's spelled out O-N-E lesson yes. for the, um, the, they're giving away the books and you can chip in for the postage if you'd like to, to get as many of copies of Henry Hazlitt's classic. So Jeff, thanks for this offer and for all you do at the Mises Institute. All right, thanks a lot, Bob. Great talking to you. Nice talking to you. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>